Since the death of Her Majesty the Queen last week, many have drawn attention to her deep Christian faith, which inspired dedicated humble service during her 70-year reign. I'm joined on the podcast this week by the Right Reverend Graham James, former Bishop of Norwich, to talk about the late Queen's Christian faith and her role as Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Bishop Graham has written an article in this week's Church Times titled A Nation's Vicarious Churchgoer, which can also be read at churchtimes.co.uk. Bishop Graham, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Good to be with you, Ed. One third of the population or thereabouts, um, we think, claim to have spoken to the late Queen or seen her in person. Um, and during your time as Bishop of Norwich, you have more the opportunity than most to spend time with her, and particularly at Sandringham. Um, I-, I wonder if you'd be able to share some of your own personal memories of the late Queen. Yes, uh, and of course, the older you are, the more likely you are to have seen her. I think for those who are over 65, it's something like half um, of all over 65-year-olds claim to have seen her in person or spoken to her. Um, Well, I had 20 years, of course, of going to Sandringham. I mean, the Queen has listened to me preach rather a lot of times, and you go um, as Bishop of Norwich and stay for a couple of days immediately after Christmas, usually between Christmas and New Year. And and it's the time when the family are gathered. I mean, it is a rare privilege. It's not one that one would talk about much. But the thing that struck me was that you were taken into the family. There's not even a lady in waiting around. The the, um, Queen's Aquarii would be there. And so it was very much... uh, staying with a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother in time, who was really pleased to have her family around her, and many of them stayed for several days. And what you noticed, I think, was, A, the first impression is of the deep devotion that members of her family had towards her. I mean, she was the gathering point. And at one level, that was much the same as in many another family, you know, mothers and grandmothers I think have an instinctive gathering. The second was the way in which you read in the newspapers. I hadn't realized until I started to stay at Sandringham that the newspapers mostly have royal stories on the Sunday edition after Christmas and there you are at breakfast reading the newspapers and then you might be reading a newspaper saying that um, I remember on one occasion you know the Prince of Wales and Prince Edward weren't speaking and you saw one of them come in and kiss the other because there's a sort of practice in the royal family. I mean, they're much more affectionate than we are in our family. We don't kiss at breakfast, but um, they do. And you thought, I'm reading about the great fishers in this dysfunctional family, and I'm observing a much more integrated family than many others, which makes you begin to wonder whether everything else you read about the royal family in the press is wrong as well. I think quite a lot is. So I do think they took much more strength from each other than uh, people outside realised, really. And I think the third thing was the absolutely unquestioned expectation on the part of the Queen that anybody staying at Sandringham would go to church with her. You know, it wasn't as if it was laid down, you know, so on other times when you're there, you know, you see Jeremy Paxman turning up if he's, you know, happens to be staying with, with the Prince of Wales or whatever. And one of the things that really um, struck me was that the Queen's faith was interwoven entirely and completely with the rest of her life. 
you know, sometimes I've heard people speaking about the Queen's Christian faith as if it was a sort of add-on or something that was peculiar to her and, you know, that, that, that she'd got at some stage as if it was a sort of separate experience. It was entirely interwoven with who she was, what she believed herself to be. And I think in that sense, it came out of an era uh, in which she was formed where the Book of Common Prayer was still um, the absolute bedrock of the Church of England, in which the assumption is that God is woven into every part of human life and is not a leisure activity for weekends or something that uh, it appeals to only a section of, pop of the population. And I think the Queen's religious faith is best understood as one which continued to come from that source and in which she saw the world through the framework of the Book of Common Prayer, which she loved so much. She didn't see it as a cause to be supported. She simply thought that this represented who she was and where she came from. I think that's one thing. And I think the second, a lot of people make a, a point about the anointing of the monarch and how private it was. I do think that although the Queen is often was often described as low church and you know she preferred matins as the main service on a Sunday, she did have a sacramental understanding, which was, of course, also very traditionally Church of England, in that she made her communion relatively infrequently, but at the greater festivals. At Sandringham on Christmas Day, the whole of the royal family would receive communion at nine o'clock and then go to church publicly at 11 for matins. And it wasn't that most of them wouldn't want to be seen receiving communion in public, although I think it is true to say that the Queen was only seen receiving communion in public in this country normally at uh, the opening of General Synod. Um, that was one occasion. But it was much more to do with a sort of sense of communion as I was prepared for confirmation as something that was highly personal between you and God that was um, deeply significant and so had to be prepared for prayerfully and received and one of the things that the Queen never did was to do what Michael Ramsey talked about I think when the parish communion, communion movement came in and that was tripping to the altar you know I mean receiving communion without due preparation that was never true for her and I think she did have a deep understanding of the of, uh, sacramental life. It was just rather differently expressed from much of the Church of England now. And it was focused, I think, on the coronation. I mean, she did see herself accountable to God for her conduct in office and that she was a servant of the people. So I think she did, she, her faith emerges from a particular period in which she grew up, which no longer applies. And it was never a cause for her. You know, she wasn't a likely recruit to the prayer book society. But at the same time, she exemplified all that um, the Book of Common Prayer and its place in the Church of England once represented. Just thinking about the, how much the Queen spoke about her, her faith during the reign, many have said that she became more open as time went on, particularly in her Christmas broadcast. I mean, do you think that was the case or do, or do you think she always felt able to, to, to speak publicly? I think the thing that changed, uh, if you go back to those early broadcasts, because I have seen some of them and uh, indeed talked with the Queen once about those early broadcasts, given that the, the first ones were live from Sandringham at three o'clock, she did say it didn't make, you know, 
did make Christmas lunch that relaxing when you're going to go on air. Added to which, I think the cables were so huge that um, the doors had to be left open, to, and so it was freezing cold while she was delivering it in a in a in a dress. So I think it was quite quite testing, but also she was she was a consummate performer, and um, I mean she's often known for doing the Christmas broad, broadcast in one take and. Uh, and she was very good at that. I think if you go back to those early broadcasts, you will see references to God, but you'll also sense that they were just a shade more impersonal than they became in the last 20 or more years. But that also was, I think, the Queen moving with the times in the sense that in the 50s, even perhaps in the early 60s, until the sort of revolution of the 60s, the sort of stoicism and reserve that the Queen obviously had within her um, was the primary thing she wanted to represent, you know, and that to to reveal too much of yourself and your inner feelings, even of your Christian faith, was not to treat it, treat the faith and God with the honour, the deference um, that God deserved, you know. Cardinal Newman spoke about the doctrine of reserve in religious matters, you know, do not speak about the things of God too easily, and including your own faith and discipleship. And I think that did change. And so uh, because we live in a different world where people wanted to hear much more of the Queen as person rather than simply the Queen as monarch, that did change. And I think she understood that and wanted um, at Christmas especially, um, to acknowledge why it was a Christmas message um, and that God becoming a human person in Jesus Christ um, was laced into who she believed herself to be. So I do think there was a change, but it wasn't a change that she was then willing to speak about a deeper faith than she might have had in the past. I think it was because we, she recognised also that people understood the Christian faith less. And so she had to be more explicit in her Christian message as to where it came from. And in her uh, welcoming and hospitality to people of other faiths or none, she wanted to make clear that that hospitality, that, if you like, tolerance, that inclusion, inclusion that um, she wanted to express actually came out of a deeply rooted conviction, not a lack of conviction or not some sort of secular idea. So there was at the very heart of it, I think, a change, but not quite the change that sometimes people think it was. I've heard the Archbishop of Canterbury and other church leaders speak about the Queen as, you know, the, the nation's great or greatest evangelist. Um, I, was, I was wondering what you what you thought of that. I'm not, not sure she'd have thought of it in those terms, but was one she, of the um, sort of unintended consequences that she actually communicated the gospel. I wouldn't have said she's the uh, I mean, far from be it from me to <laughs> descend from the Archbishop. I think she was the Church of England's greatest witness, not the greatest evangelist. There is a difference between witnessing and evangelism. I saw no evidence that the Queen saw herself in any evangelistic capacity, but she was undoubtedly um, somebody who was very keen to witness to the faith that was within her. Now that, of course, is persuasive. And I think a lot more people have been converted to the Christian faith by witnessing than they have by evangelism. 
but mm. then that's just veering into other territories that we may keep off. Sure. Do you think, I mean, a lot of sorts have been said about how much the Queen kept her political or, or social views to herself, and that obviously required, um, and, and she obviously saw that as absolutely essential not to come down on different sides of, of, of public debates. But I mean, was her Christian faith perhaps the one thing which she could speak about because in both at Christmas, as you said, but also her role as Supreme Governor? I mean, it, it would it would be logical to be able to talk. Yes. I think that I hadn't thought of it in that sort of way. That is, I think that is true. It wasn't true once you got to know her or spent time with her that the Queen didn't have convictions or opinions. Um, I think she had quite a lot of them and she might trust you with them. I mean, one of the things that really struck me was how trusted you were if you were staying at Sandringham with the family in terms of what they would say to, in, to you, in front of you, what they would share. Um, which didn't suggest to me that these were people without quite strong convictions, some of which might um, be surprising to others. But the trustedness of being uh, on the receiving end of that meant that you didn't share it. You know, people will share the funny incidents, perhaps, but you don't. It's so rare that anybody ever quoted what the Queen would have said seriously about anything. This has happened a few times usually by politicians, I noticed, not by um, others who've been in, who were in the, the late Queen's company. Yes, it is true that um, she could speak about her Christian faith without risking controversy, it was thought, except that we live in an age in which, of course, it was a, a you know, it's a minority pursuit to speak about your Christian faith. And one of the things, as I think I said in the article, that's surprising is that the Queen did move with the times. There's no doubt about that. You only have to listen to a voice from her early broadcasts to the later ones. And she did, she, she accommodated herself without changing in herself to a changing culture. But the one thing she didn't cease to do, which much of England had ceased to do during her reign, was go to church and speak of the importance of the Christian faith to her. And that's where I think the, what, we, what we saw was a country that never wanted the Queen, let alone the rest of the royal family, to give up going to church, but wanted, I think, sometimes to do this on their behalf because they saw in her a unity between church and state. They saw in her, as a figurehead without political power, a, a means of creating harmony in the country. And I think instinctively people realise that came from a deeply held Christian conviction on her part. And as I've observed more than once, you know, when you saw the hundreds, sometimes thousands of people queuing to watch the Queen go to church at Sandringham. And you know, I, I, I would often say, you know, what, what on earth would happen if the Queen turned over in bed on a Sunday morning and decided she wouldn't bother going? You know, it was unthinkable that the Queen didn't go to church. It, and yet most of the people watching didn't normally go, although one of the good things at Sandringham was that the service was relayed to them by loudspeakers outside, which I hope will long continue. It is true, I think, that people saw in the Queen uh, a sense of unity in our land through this figurehead, but they also knew that it wasn't a political unity, it was a human unity, it was a religious unity, there was something deeply spiritual about it, 
And of course, she had always been there. And one of the things that's a challenge, I think, is that you know, King Charles is not going to have a reign of anything like the same length. We are going to go through a period of changing monarchs. And we've been through a period of much more frequent changes of prime minister compared with my early life, really. And uh, I, I think we're yet to know what, you know, some changes in the monarch will do to the nature of our constitution, because so much of it, I think, is to do with stability and continuity, which I think King Charles has exemplified in his first public statements. You know, I mean, if there's ever a time for continuity and stability in our country and in the rest of the world, it's um, at the moment. And I think he's touched the right, absolutely the right um, nerve and got the right tone, which it would have been very easy not to have done. Um, But it's been a sign, I suspect, that uh, his preparation has been long and uh, and nobody has occupied the position of Prince of Wales um, like him, which has been um, one, yes, he's had opinions, but he's been of great service to nation and Commonwealth. And you, know, you only have to look at the history of the Princes of Wales to know that this has been an exception. Um, we have been blessed by some exceptional, I think, people uh, in the royal family uh, during you know, my lifetime, uh, and it looks as if it will go on. So that's a blessing. Uh, it's been quite a reporting for Queen's um, quite landmark speech at Lambeth Palace in 2012 during her mm. Diamond Jubilee celebrations, when she, she spoke about how the idea of the established church had, had sometimes been misunderstood and underappreciated. He said its role is not to defend Anglicanism to the exclusion of other religions, um, but it has a duty to protect the free practice of all faiths in this country. I mean, the Archbishop Canterbury said he's sure that this is a view shared by King Charles. I mean, do you think that'll there'll be even more emphasis on that. We know Prince Charles has very strong relationships with, you know, Muslim community, Jewish community, he's, he's deeply. Yes, I think, I think the important thing is that it's not, um, I mean, the Church of England has evolved um, uh, in its um, recent centuries. Uh, the Church of England was not, you know, it's, it's, its founding principles, as it were, are not to be hospitable to a host of other religions. But what, what, establishment gives us and there are of course all sorts of um, weak points to establishment and challenges to it although it's very noticeable that even the um, disestablished churches uh, in Wales or even in Northern Ireland I mean where, where did King Charles go in Cardiff he goes to Llandaff Cathedral you know where does he go in um, uh, in Northern Ireland, he goes um, to the Church of Ireland. You know, these are disestablished churches, yet at this period, it seems that Anglican churches, which were established, still have that sort of residue, really. Noticeable in Canada, you know, where, you know, where are the services of remembrance taking place? They're taking place in Anglican cathedrals. You know, it's all of, all of that, I think, is sort of woven into Anglicanism. And yet I think it's also true to say that in England, one of the things that the establishment of the Church of England, which is different, obviously, we've got a place in political life, you know, with bishops in the Church of, in the House of Lords and so on. What, what, what that place does is to give honour to religion on, in the public square. In other words, religious faith is not thought to be something private 
um, confessional, simply confessional, and kept out of the body politic. The place of religion in the body politic is a subtle thing in England because we don't have a state church and yet we have an established church. I think if we had a state church um, with much closer links, including financial ones with government, then it would be potentially excluding. And yet we don't have that. And therefore, um, I've, I've known that you know, many Jews, many Sikhs are very grateful to the Church of England for the place that it occupies without trying to be exclusive in public life. And it gives them a voice as well in public life as faith communities and faith leaders. You only have to compare um, the way in which religious minorities do seem to fit into our culture, our country, um, compared with secular France, to know that secular constitutions find the diversity of religious faith and, and significant minorities much more difficult to manage. Now, that's not a theological justification for our establishment, but it is a practical consequence of it. I think it's quite hard to work out how you justify the current establishment theologically uh, in England, and yet it has quite a lot of benefits for us, and we see it expressed in all sorts of ways, and not simply in relation to the Church of England. I think at the Accession Council, the um, promises that the King made in relation to the Church of Scotland, which then had to be countersigned by people, including the Scottish First Minister, to protect the rights of the Presbyterian rights of the Church of Scotland caught lots of people by surprise. Um, but of course, it's a reminder that there are two established churches in this country and not just one. And I think the events uh, of recent days have been a reminder that church and state are still um, interwoven uh, in uh, the United Kingdom in ways that we have almost forgotten because we've not seen these ceremonies for 70 years. Some of them seem incredibly archaic, but when you begin to think about what they represent, you think, well, the language may be archaic, but the point of them may not yet be um, completely without, without um, significance. So I think it's, it's hard to know what the future holds because um, a monarch who's the Supreme Governor of the Church of England hardly seems in keeping with our own time at one level. Uh, and yet, I'm absolutely certain that um, King Charles III um, will be entirely content in that role. And of course, he has been formed, given his age, um, by uh, a Church of England that isn't um, a denomination, but sees itself, you know, in the way that his mother also saw it in relation to its, its um, establishment as, it, as reflected in the Book of Common Prayer. But he, of course, is also well aware that the sort of world view that he inhabits is not one that's shared by everybody, even within the Church of England. And so I think there are, there are challenges for us, and we'd be foolish to think there's going to be absolute stability and continuity um, in both church and state. Um, but quite what the outcome will be, I don't know. At the moment, I think all the stress is on continuities and on stability. And so it should be, because I think that's reassuring at a time of deep instability in Europe, um, in the world economic order, 
and in our own political life. So at one level, I do thank God for the monarchy as we've received it. And I thank God and pray for King Charles III and uh, may he reign long over us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.